Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 79. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode on Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in their classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Amanda Dillingham. Amanda is a biology teacher at East Boston High School. Amanda has taught a variety of different life science classes throughout her career, including biology, honors biology, and AP biology. Throughout her career, Amanda has been involved in a variety of science programs at East Boston High School, including a science mentoring program with the Umana Academy, the East Boston High School Annual Science Night event, enrichment programs for AP classes, including bringing students to Harvard Life Science Outreach. Amanda has also helped her students engage in the STEM Pathways program, a program that seeks to inspire, mentor, train, and empower current and future generations of STEM students with a focus on underrepresented groups. Amanda is the 2019 recipient of the Outstanding Biology Teacher Award for the state of Massachusetts. You can follow her on Twitter at AmandaDillingH3. Welcome, Amanda. Hey, how are you? Good, good. Haven't seen you, um, I'm trying to think. It might have been, a, it's been probably more than a year since I've seen you face to face. Absolutely. It's been a while. Yeah, we were, I remember seeing you at the, I want to say it was the uh, final assembly for BioBuilder at Lab Central. Yeah, a couple years that's ago. exactly when we saw each other. Yeah. Yeah. And even though we run in very similar circles, um, uh, I, I was seeing our, I saw our common friend Don Pinkerton recently. Um, I know. I actually also saw Don at MIT just like last week. He's in yeah. Google. Yeah. Yeah. He was working with some students and he came over. I was over at Harvard. Um, working with some of the folks over there. And so he came over for lunch. Um, <laughs> nice. Okay. Yeah. Just because a bunch of us were there and he came over to see some of us. So uh, yeah, it was nice. And you've been busy, super busy this summer with students. Yeah, we've been really busy this summer. Um, fortunately um, in Boston, we got a grant through Mass Life Science Center. Mm. Um, so I have been working with students and working with Mass Bio Ed with Michelle. Mm -hmm. um, I'm excited to to know that my, yeah, basically I've been all over the place with students. They mm -hmm. have worked in internships around the city. Um, I just saw them at Gen, uh, Vertex. I'm going to Genzyme this week and uh, the Linux program. Um, they've, they've been presenting their final poster presentations. So I'm really proud of them. Yeah, so your typical, you know, summer off um, <laughs> where you've been that. I love summer off. <laughs> yeah, you did you did it all wrong. You didn't take your summer off. You didn't go to the beach. You brought a bunch of kids into a bunch of labs all throughout the city. So, um not surprising, but that's that's uh, a good it is still invigorating to not necessarily be in the classroom but to be in these different settings with kids. Absolutely. And one thing that's really exciting is um with the grant, uh, we actually got I got to work with two other teachers at MIT with um, Michelle, and it happened to be that I'm working in a lab across the hall from my students in the Linux program. So not only were they working in the lab, but they actually got to see their teachers working in the lab opposite them. And that was just an incredible experience. 
That is that's very cool. They got to see you as the, as a scientist. Right. We were we were both watching each other as fellow scientists. They were really excited, and quite frankly, so was I. We kept waving at each other through the through the glass. <laughs> so. the- that's pretty cool. Yeah. And so as we were talking, obviously this is end of summer. Um, as I, as I always stack my, uh, episodes, I, <laughs> I always try to book as many recordings as I can in like, uh, July and August. So this will come out in, in mid September. So at that, this point, we're going to be both be back in school. Uh, we'll have kids in front of us again and we'll be in our buildings with our colleagues. So, um, it, it's good that you got out of that setting, but, um, but I know that I always get um, eager to start seeing the kids in school again this time of year. Yes, absolutely. I'm excited. And um, I got to see most of them out in their internships, but I will also be excited to see uh, my other students and hear what they did. And we will all join back together and have a reunion, especially in our biotech pathway. Um, yeah. We'll get to see those students again. Oh, that's very cool. All right. Well, we could we could talk, uh, you know, summer research, and I think we will probably get back to it in a little bit. But um, I do want to get into the question I like to ask everyone to start, which is, um, how did you become a science teacher? And this could be a big question, like, how in the world did you become a science teacher in East Boston is going to be a follow up. But what led you into the classroom? I, I think that's a very interesting question. So um, I am from Louisiana. And my mother was an uh, elementary teacher. My grandmother was an elementary teacher. And my aunt was an also elementary teacher. And so I grew up very much so cleaning classrooms and setting up bulletin boards and doing all of that work literally almost all of my life. So by the time I was 18, I told my family I would never be a teacher. <laughs> um, and I decided I was going to be a scientist. Uh, so I actually worked for quite a few years um, doing different degree programs until around 28 years old, I decided I absolutely more than anything wanted to be a teacher <laughs> and I wanted to be a science teacher. And that's, that's kind of where it is. I had an opportunity to move from Louisiana to Boston and I, um, I showed up one day and knocked on Boston public school's door and um, applied to be a substitute. And from there on, I, I started getting what I with my credentials in order to be able to teach in Boston. It's a long, oh. it's a long story. So I, I'm curious the kind of work that you did. So you, you, you went through college and uh, you went to school down in Louisiana originally, yes. right? Um, yes. But you don't just have a bachelor's degree in biology, right? You, you have a, you went and got a master's as well. Yeah. So I am, um, like I said, a long and winding road, um, but I, my undergrad, I couldn't decide between biology or French. So I did them both. <laughs> and um, after my undergrad, I knew I wanted to be a scientist. So I did a master's in toxicology, actually, first. And I, um, I wanted to be a toxicologist, but I found there that I did not like working with animals so closely. Um, a lot of my work involved rats and mice. And so I knew that, that wasn't for me. Um, and then after that, I went to LSU Health Science Center in Shreveport, Louisiana, and I started a PhD program there. Um, I, I worked for three and a half years at a PhD program, and um, and that's when I had a, like some life-changing events and decided that I wanted to teach. And I instead of finishing a PhD, I I left with a master's, so I got a second master's degree in biochemistry. A little note: I'm going to go on an aside really quickly and just say, don't ever do that. <laughs> if you are if you are listening to this and you are three and a half years into a PhD program, even if you want to teach. 
finish the PhD program. You never know when you'll need it again. Yeah, yeah. I and, and it, I have one regret, and that's it. That's mm. it. Um, it. It's interesting because I've talked to, and I know that um, I had conversations with different people. Um, I think three and a half years is a really interesting time in the PhD program. I, I would say there could be you could be three and a half years in. And look up and go. Oh, sh- I, ha- I have four years to go. <laughs> Absolutely, it's anywhere it, from five to eight years. Yeah, depends. Uh, and I remember talking to to Kirsten Milks, who was at Stanford, and I think she she was nearly finished. I think she was like less than two years left to go, and she could sort of see the end when she it dawned on her that she wanted to teach. But for her, she was so close to the end; it was. In easy, it was easy to see the end. So I can totally, especially knowing the various people I know who have got PhD, know what it was like to be in that program and look up and say, "Oh, it's so long away for me to finish." I'll never make another three years. Yeah. And then you know, twenty, fifteen, twenty years later, you're like, three years? That was nothing." Yeah. Um. But either way, I'm. I do not. I. I. I think about it all the time, and maybe one day I'll be back in it shortly uh, to get a PhD, but. At that point, I had moved to Boston, and I never will regret uh, changing my life to teach here. I did, however, have to get a third master's degree. <laughs> um, so I actually have three master's degrees, and uh, no PhD, but three master's degrees. I guess I'm making up for it. Yeah. But I, I actually taught at South Boston when I started Boston. I've been in Boston public for 12 years, hmm. and the first four years I taught in Excel High School, and then I would go at night and go to UMass Boston and do my master's in education. So that's yeah, that, how I started. That's not a bad trip if you're already in South Boston. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. And so I don't know if you know this about me, but um, whenever I see East Boston, uh, so I taught early in my career, long ago, back when you were still in Louisiana, I taught in Winthrop. Um, Did you really? Nice. Yeah. yeah, you were close. Yeah, so like I taught, I maybe it's maybe three miles uh, from <laughs> where you currently teach. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, it's a small world. Yeah, and it it's funny because um, when I was early in my career, and I I was sort of at that early crossroads, and Winthrop is the place I I taught before I came out to the suburbs, um, and I thought about like, do I go to Boston Public? Like, do it was one of those uh, things that I I, I pondered a lot and. Um, they would have those like you could go on and I don't know how how it works now because I have not looked for a job in mm-hmm. forever. But uh, when I was, you know, 25, 26, uh, I would frequently pull up the like sort of the help wanted for Boston Public Schools on days when I was being driven crazy by my um, administration mm-hmm. and went up and go, right. I bet you I could get a job tomorrow <laughs> teaching in the Boston Public Schools. Mm-hmm. Um uh, you know, credentialed biology teacher that I was at the time. So, um, mm-hmm. it did cross my pa- my mind that doing exactly what you said, just like becoming a sub in Boston public schools and seeing if I could trans- transition that into well, a career. That's exactly early. how I did it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you get the masters and, and you work your way over to East Boston and this sort of leads me into the, the second thing I was wondering about. And mm-hmm. obviously I, I reflected a little bit on my own personal career of wondering what it was like. Um, I've never really worked in what I would consider a big district. And I teach in a school of 2000 students now. And so right. a lot of people would look at my school and our district is, you know, 6,000 and there's 2000 student high school. And in a lot of places, that's a pretty big district, but you teach in a district of 125 schools and 32 high schools. Right. Um, 
what does it feel like to teach in a district that size? Is it does it feel like you're in this giant district, or does it just feel like? I mean, I know from being at East Boston High School, it just feels like it's the high school for East Boston. What does it feel like to be part of, you know, that giant behemoth of a public school system? Uh, smaller than you would imagine. I mean, yeah. the Boston, I love Boston public schools. I, I just really do. And um, I've been here for 12 years and I do remember being very overwhelmed early but we have a pretty good community. So, you know, and then if you think about for the 32 high schools, so while it's enormous, um, it's been amazing how, how I was just talking to a friend of mine. You end up working with people a lot in other schools. And sometimes people change jobs and might teach in your school. So there are people that I've known in my career that I've already taught with at two different schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we kind of mix around. Also, I happen to think that the science teachers, I'll just stick there because that's who I know. uh, They're just an incredible group of teachers. And so what happens is I see them all over the place. So I'm now seeing them when I go over to Amgen or I will see them, you know, at the science fair or I will see them, you know, in different places and we start getting to know each other. So I do love it. Um, I do. I do think it can be overwhelming. Um, but also now I teach at East Boston and I always feel like it's, um, it's definitely an interesting place because we're on the other side of Boston. Yeah. It's very much a community based. It's a community school. And so a lot of the students that come to our school, um, have been going, have lived in East Boston for the last 10 or so years. And a lot of the teachers that I actually work with at East Boston, um, went to high school there, including our principal. So our headmaster of East Boston was a student at East Boston. He was a teacher and now he's a principal. So it's, it's, we're very small communities within a large working space. Yeah. I guess that was the thing that I, I could sort of see the dichotomy because at, the, at one hand, Boston Public has, you know, exam schools. So students, when they're getting ready for high school, they can take a test and then go over to, you know, a Boston Latin, for example, which is an, sort of an exam magnet school. Um, and but as you said, for people who don't know the geography of Boston, um uh, and I, I mentioned I ta- taught in Winthrop. Winthrop is a literally this little tiny peninsula that sticks off of Revere in East Boston. But you're out by the airport. You're on the other side of the water. You're sort of separated from the rest of the city by either, a, you know, a tunnel <laughs> or a bridge right. um, that you are this little community that's separate. So I would imagine that it does have much more of that neighborhood feel. Um, although you could have kids, I guess, from anywhere, right? They could to get on the blue line. I mean, and and we, do, we do have students from around the city, um, but between the tunnel and the T, a lot of, at East Boston, a lot of the students do, in fact, um, live there. Mm. So. Yeah. And so, and so those are kids who've grown up together. They've, they've lived in the neighborhoods. Um, yeah. <laughs> so. they, they do. They know each other. Um, a lot. So it, it definitely, I absolutely love East Boston and I just think it's incredible and it's very family oriented and the students really do know each other and they've known each other for a long time. Yeah. And, and you brought up the idea of sort of the teacher community as well. And I know that like um, for you and we, we have a, you know, friends who teach at, uh, at Revere high school um, in some instances, I would think that that also sets up because of, because of where you are, it's easier for you to maybe get together with teachers who teach at Revere High School, which even though I don't, Revere's not part of the Boston Public Schools. No, um, but like we just talked about Don earlier. No, Don's in Revere. Yeah, and David so, Eaton. Yeah. 
There's, uh, there's definitely people, and I think that they they have a lot going on where they need. Yeah. I, as you were talking also about the like the different places like Amgen and, and places where teachers get together, um, we at the end of the summer just had our first um, New England AP Biology uh, PLC meeting, the AP Bio uh, group. So we're going to have to get some of you Boston public school folks out. Um, I know we're in the process of trying to set up a winter meeting um, to get together and have that conversation um, and get some of the, the Boston public teachers, uh, maybe some of the Revere, maybe get eaten off to come out from from Revere to come out. Um, and we had about 25 teachers who came. Uh, we met in Connecticut um, but oh, we're, wow. look, we're looking at doing a, a Massachusetts-based uh, meeting sometime in the winter, uh, maybe December. And uh, also, for those people paying attention, I will I'll post up in the show notes if we have a date uh, and place set up at that point. Otherwise, I will we'll post it out on Twitter. And I know that um, some of the other people I work with will be sending out invites if people are in the New England area and are AP teachers and want to get together and be part of that, you know, community of teachers. Um, that may be something else we could sort of promote as well so yeah all right so um one of the other things you mentioned earlier with the 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 students is that you know you were bringing them into boston um and you also have this background this research background which i think is such a cool background because every time i talk to somebody who has like a deep research background multiple masters who's been in the lab and that sort of thing um it's it's interesting to see how much they bring research into their classroom, um, Mm -hmm. that really your science classrooms and the work that you do with your students tends to mirror what it's like to actually authentically do science. And, and for you, I know you spent several summers doing the, um, research experience for teachers or RET programs Mm -hmm. at Boston university. Um, was that part of keeping yourself engaged in the, the process of, you know, continually learning and impacting science into your classroom and and how did those summer programs impact your, your work with your students? Sure. Um, one other thing I think, I did the RET program four summers in a row, actually, with BU. Yeah. And I worked with the nano manufacturing department. Um, and that was interesting. I started looking into RET programs because I did, in fact, miss research. Mm. Um, and so I had already been teaching about seven or eight years when I really wanted to spend some time working back in a lab with professors and have a connection at a university research level. Another point of interest is that program, in fact, is not a like a biological research program but it was an engineering program and I had never learned. I had, I didn't know too much about engineering mm. and I had always wanted to learn some. And, uh, and also with the new NGSS standards, there was a big push in integrating, you know, engineering practices into the curriculum. Yeah. So that is why I worked there. Um, the first year I actually worked in a, a heat lab and um, we looked at engineering materials for, quick heat transfer. And then this actually the second and the third year I worked um, actually writing curriculum with the director to try to integrate engineering into biology and what that would look like. And then last year I went back into a um, cell tissue engineering lab that I really loved. And I worked with Dr. Chen and I actually was able to grow blood vessels. Um, And that's his lab actually is looking at blood vessels and engineering 3D cellular designs and tissue designs so that you can do research without looking at animal models or, you know, waiting on to study humans. So, so sort of like an organoid model. Right. 
yeah, yeah. because there's a big push, which I appreciated too, as a, a person who didn't like working with animals in toxicology. Yeah, I really loved this because they're they're actually looking at they create 3D tissue models. Um, and so, for example, if you were studying what drugs, you know, how they affect blood vessels, you can grow this 3D uh, cell tissue model of a blood vessel system, and you can actually study it. And that was just absolutely incredible. Um, back when I was in the labs a lot, that was almost like science fiction. Um, and we just dreamed about it. And you only saw like 2D cell culture. But now, really, it's just incredible what advancement has happened. And I think that real world experience definitely enriched my curriculum and what I do in the classroom. Because it brought in things even I was unaware of, even with research background. So you said you spent two years writing curriculum. So like, were those like curriculum modules? Were they things that were add-ons to existing curriculum or were they, they whole new um, curriculum pieces that brought engineering into a life science classroom? Right. So what I worked on there was kind of re-engineering uh, <laughs> biology curriculum. And I think those models I had about, or modules, I had four of them and I've actually tested them in the last few years. Um, and some of them need to some more work, but um, they were definitely around like social issues or problems because engineers solve problems. Mm. And uh, we, you know, looked at the ecology unit. We looked at like climate change. We looked at problems with plastic pollution and we looked at water, um, clean water, access to clean water. So then what happened is we would actually study that. We integrated the biology uh, standards. And then, you know, we learn this biology standards with an emphasis on solving a problem, you know, so it's just kind of reworking curriculum and adding in what I've learned from research and putting it in. And it was somewhat successful. Neat. And then you could also take your kids out to Deer Island, which is the water treatment plant that's not too far. If you can build that out a little more, I don't know if that's something you already do. Sure. I did not go to Deer Island, um, but you can build that out. Yeah. That's a pretty cool idea. So I, I guess the way I would view this is that for most of my units as a biology teacher, like I will have labs that are focused on the, you know, the acting, asking questions and those science practices. But what you're saying is that you had a couple of modules that it, rather than looking at having students like ask questions and design investigations, they were looking at uh, trying to come up with the solutions to the problem with that engineering mindset of, of sort of the engineering. I don't know if you use a triangle or a five-step process, but to design, build, test, to see if you get to a solution um, to the problem rather than just asking questions. Right. Yeah. It's good summary <laughs> <laughs> neat i have i've run a few workshops where i taught about engineering yeah. cycles, <laughs> so <laughs> i think you may have done one of those similarly uh <laughs> if you if you did some biobuilder stuff so um that's neat i i think it's interesting to hear the the idea and you brought up the whole question about when you saw the ret i've seen those same ret uh programs and i think my mindset every time i looked at them was like these are just like material science. These are just, um, you know, th these aren't biology. I want to go and do biology, although your last one very much sounded like biology. Um, so I guess your advice would be, if I see one of those types of things, I shouldn't say, oh, that's that's like a physical science thing. RET programs wow, that have absolutely. engineering, I should be diving into that. Sure, dive in. 
Um, and I will tell you, it wasn't without fear that they still laugh at me sometimes there. I was very, very afraid, even with research backgrounds and a biological notice, like a, an understanding. I was very, so I applied for it and I was like, well, maybe they won't want me because I'm a biology teacher, but then they brought me on. And then I looked on, I was like, oh my God, all these people have so much physics and math. What are they going to want with me? Um, but I still kept going. And then it turns out, you know, you can really find a niche anywhere. Biologists, uh, biology and engineering is incredibly important right now um, because engineers have been working for quite some time, but there's a big emphasis on making, you know, um, earth friendly materials mm -hmm. and understanding biomimicry and understanding how the natural world does it so that engineers can actually use a lot of the biology to engineer better things you know, for us more healthy, more sustainable and cleaner materials. So at this point, it's actually quite exciting to be a biologist and to study engineering. So I would say jump in. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love being in the lab, but I, I, I know that I, you know, I, I had those fears, but as you're describing it and having the trepidation, I actually remembered earlier this summer, um, I went to a workshop where I went to a microbiology workshop as part of the, the tiny earth um, initiative, uh, which I will probably be talking about more later this school year um, after I tried some things out. And I think I'll bring in one of the other high school teachers on who was down there with me on a future episode. Um, but I had that moment where I had showed up and I, you know, compared to like 99% of the people I see on a daily basis, I'm a microbiologist. But mm -hmm. when you're in a university lab and you're one of like four high school or five high school biology teachers and the other 20 teachers there are all microbiology professors with PhDs in microbiology. Um, you are not a microbiologist yeah. in that room. And I was like, ah, but you said that thing about the niche, the, the things I know about curriculum and like asking questions and like curriculum design, um, I had it way over those, the microbiologists. Exactly. So I, I did find my niche in that space, but that moment of having dread or like worry or concern, I definitely had that. I remember that distinctly, that moment early on going, oh, I just don't know this stuff the way these people do. I Maybe I shouldn't be here. Uh, I think that's a, a very natural, a natural feeling every time you stretch yourself and put yourself out of, uh, into those uncomfortable spaces. Right. Yeah. But. But even the engineers, the engineers welcomed you in. It sounds like they welcomed you back several times. Incredible. It's an incredible program. It really is. Um, and I kept coming back and I kept complaining because I wanted to do engineering and biology. And that's when they finally were like, all right, we'll send you to Dr. Chen's lab. Uh, you can engineer biological tissues. And I was, you know, score. That was awesome. It was the coolest thing I've, I've seen in a very long time. Wow. Oh, all right. Well, let's let's shift gears a little bit. And I, I think this still is in the same spirit because um, we're both members of the Amgen Biotech Harvard Life Science family, um, if you will, the mm -hmm. uh, that group. Mm -hmm. um, and um, when I, I always do my uh, I didn't use this phrase with you earlier, but I, I always do my Internet stalking, as I always tell everybody. And I, I pull like into Google and how many Amanda Dillinghams are out there and Amanda, you know, oh, biology. Yeah. And, um, and actually, I came across an article that I remember seeing 
um, that came out uh, earlier. I think that they had pushed it out in one of their newsletters, one of the Amgen newsletters, um, that you got to sit down with an Amgen senior scientist, uh, a guy named Luke Ward um, at Mm -hmm. Amgen, uh, at the Amgen Biotech Experience. Um, And you were at Harvard and I saw some pictures of of some teachers sitting around the room and, and you were specifically talking to Luke Ward about how genetics and personalized medicine intersects with issues of race and ethnicity. Um, and I thought there were so many cool things are in there. So let's start by like the, the background, like what, how did you end up in a room with these other teachers and this Amgen scientist to talk about personalized medicine? Well, I like you, I've been, I don't know, I've been with Amgen for uh, Amgen biotech experience for a while now, maybe Mm -hmm. five or six years Mm -hmm. and working with Alia and, um, I think in the last year or so, they have been looking at writing new curriculums. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that they were doing was writing uh, around personalized medicine and kind of looking at possibly a backstory to go around with personalized gen- genetics in the PTC lab. And yeah. so I had offered to um, kind of pilot a lot of this curriculum in my classroom in my biotech pathway class. And, uh, and so we were there for, I, I don't actually... I was there for a PD around this. Yeah. Um, working with the Amgen BBC. And um, they had invited Luke Ward in to talk to us about uh, personalized medicine and what it really is and what it's not and what its limitations are and what it can actually do. Um, but we started talking and, uh, you know, there are some things that got brought up around the way teachers and people talk about personalized medicine and how many times it really gets um, confusing. Hmm. The whole goal was to just bring sort of teachers and the scientists together to sort of have this discussion to, to like see where the areas of, of commonality were and maybe even some areas that needed a little more exploring. Yes. And they brought Luke Ward in to basically talk to us about what's actually happening in the company mm-hmm. and different companies around personalized medicine. And, and how that works. And then we kind of went off on a tangent. And so this kind of, I don't know if this was planned, but it's how it happened. And so one of the problems that I have or started thinking about is how we as biology teachers um, really talk about genetics in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And how many times we try to simplify genetics uh, in order to teach it. But sometimes if you oversimplify things, mm-hmm. you can actually really do more harm than good um and so you know a lot of times i found over the years that my students really think that everything i say is accurate they like they do have a lot of faith and trust in you you know i'm sure your students if they ask you a question and you give them an answer they take that as the answer yeah well for example i teach sickle cell Mm -hmm. and we say that sickle cell is more common in African people, or sometimes you'll hear people say African-American people, or sometimes you'll say it originated in Africa, but we don't, I think we have to be very careful in how we talk about genetics, mm-hmm. evolution, and race, uh, because they don't actually go together. Um, race is actually very much a social construct that has had a very interesting um, history, and a lot of times race gets brought up when you start talking about genetics or personalized medicine. Um, and I think that as a teacher, especially, you know, a white teacher, I have to be very, very, 
I need to be very accurate and have a good understanding of what I'm saying, why I'm saying it and how I'm saying things so that I'm not accidentally reinforcing um, racist concepts. Yeah. You know, um, and so it can be very tricky. And um, I didn't feel that I had the best biological knowledge. And so we happened with Luke Ward in the um, room. He has an incredible amount of knowledge around um, what personalized medicine is and how it's used. And he also has a lot of information or knew a lot of articles about how to talk about genetics in, um, in an interesting way and, and how to breach some of the subjects. And so he was willing to share that. And I really appreciate that about him. Yeah, it's the I don't know if you've seen any of the work by Brian Donovan from BSCS um, that's just started to come out in the last year. It, it's uh, have you have you heard of any of his stuff? I don't know if you the name well, means not anything. Off the top of my head at the second. Yeah, I, so I went to a talk from him um, out in San Diego at NABT. Um, and I, I happened to know uh, Paul Strode in Colorado had done a little bit of work with him. So I literally went to this because I thought it sounded like an interesting topic. And also, um, I'm good friends with Paul. And so anytime Paul is on the edge of doing something, it's, it's always worth seeing because I always learn so much from him. Uh, but uh, they they recently put out a paper. I'll make sure I put it in my show notes. Um and the title was Towards a More Humane Genetics Education, Learning About the Social Quantitative Complexities of Human Genetic Variation um, Research Could Reduce Racial Bias in Adolescent and Adult Populations. Um, and it's literally just what you're saying, being careful about language and not inadvertently reinforcing um, racist preconceptions that exist because of well-meaning yet careless use of language right. um, that that students don't and I, I think the ancestry.com or uh, the 23andme kits people start to think oh that there are like huge differences in the genes between people from different parts of the world when in fact there's not, not. yeah right um so it sounds like you were like you were cognizant of this going into the conversation a little bit, or was it a case where he was talking and that you said this was an inadvertent conversation? Um, were these things that you thought about to bring up, or it just organically came up through the conversation? I won't claim to have any like master plan and <laughs> in driving the conversation. I think it came up and it, it came up with the way that we were all talking and it made me start wondering how I teach what I say and what examples I use in a classroom and how those could have had completely unintended but detrimental impacts on students mm -hmm. and I think a lot of it just came up as we were talking about examples on when you could use personalized medicine mm -hmm. and we teach this all of this is in our classrooms looking at Tay-Sachs and um, you know, a Jewish population in Tay-Sachs, yeah. okay? Sickle cell and African-American people in our classrooms, okay? You know, there's another one, and we go around the room, but it's almost like you're highlighting these, uh, some differences, and we simplify it in ways that definitely can cause more impact, especially, um, I don't know, I just had a lot of experiences with it. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, I, I know that from having conversations with people about um, whenever you bring eugenics into your classroom, there definitely feels like a, you're looking back and you're like, oh, eugenics, it was, it was clearly, you know, 
this awful idea, misguided, misused. Um, but I, I know from teaching some bioethics um, in the classroom that you walk a razor's edge of, are we on the dawn of a new form of eugenics that's just a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more um, technological um, because we're not speaking about genetics in a proper way and we're confusing um, some population trends with the concept of race. I think that is exactly, I, I don't know. I mean, I just worry. I, I just think that as a biology teacher and as biology teachers in Massachusetts, especially, and we're, you know, even when you bring up the mass, the MCAS, a large portion of our class is on evolution. Mm -hmm. And a large portion of our class is on genetics and teaching central dogma. Uh, and mutations. And I just think that it would be worth a look for us to carefully analyze what it is that we're teaching and saying and why we're choosing to teach what we're doing and how we could be, um, we just need to be more cognizant about what we say. That's, that's all. Yeah. You know, and do or not, or not put in. Yeah. I, I think it's, I mean, it's funny because I think it's a, it's a conversation that I've been hearing in a variety of different places. Um, as I said, I brought, it was on an NABT um, workshop last year that it came up and the research researcher from BSES. And then I came across this article and it immediately reminded me of this work that I had seen about Colorado work that was presented out in California um, that, that I think we're now aware that the popularization of, of, 23 and me and those types of things where people are getting this information absent a genetic counselor <laughs> right. means that they're um, putting together concepts in their heads um, in, in a somewhat intuitive way um, trends that they saw patterns that they saw. But if they don't have a good sense of the real science behind it and they have a, uh, a loose sense of language, like we talk about, you know, mm -hmm. um, population genetics and race are not the same thing. Cause as you said, race is a social construct. Um, there, it could be very easy for people to reinforce their misconceptions rather than deconstruct them. Um, and if we're not aware that people have come bring those misconceptions in and teach in such a way to deconstruct them. It's the same thing as teaching anything else that has misconceptions in them. If you don't get deconstruct the misconception, you inadvertently reinforce those. Absolutely. And I think that is, that's kind of the nature of, and the worry that came up and, and that's how, you know, um, that conversation with Dr. Ward happened. Yeah. So, so you had that conversation with Dr. Ward last fall, right? And then you, you clearly taught last year and you taught genetics and you taught evolution and you taught biotechnology and did it, did it influence any of your conversations with your students or was it just something that you were a little more mindful of or did it have an impact? I mean, it, it has a great impact. <laughs> I, I don't, um, you know, I'm still deconstructing in my head, you know, what is happening and why it happened. So I think myself, along with, you know, a lot of the other people that are pursuing this line of questioning, it's, you know, where, okay, where are the stuck points? Where are the misconceptions? And what do we need to do in order to address those? Mm -hmm. I know that in biotech, we did do personalized medicine and we did talk about it. I also really love, um, 
you know, I don't, I don't think they've published their full pilot, but they, Amgen did a great job of adding in readings mm -hmm. and um, some thoughts uh, around the readings, around deconstructing, um, you know, making sure that you're not pairing race and medicine together inappropriately and um, looking at ethnicity and things like that. I think they had some great stuff there. Yeah. Yes. Did it have an impact? Yes. Do I really want to digest it at this moment? I think I need to think some more about yeah. it. Yeah. This would be another one of those interesting things to bring in. Um, you know, again, we brought up Don uh, Pinkerton earlier when, when he does, I know he does the mitochondrial genetics uh, with his students um, and, and they get to track back and he teaches uh, uh, in Revere and he works, um, oftentimes he does that with his ELL biology. And so he has people mm -hmm. from, um, you know, Central America, South America, but really can be from all over the world. Um, and, and they would do that. And, uh, I would be curious to see how his thoughts would go on there because I know he's very positive about um diversity and differences and it's kind mm -hmm. of like a cool phenomenon that there's this diversity but that's a little bit different than talking about like medicine um and genes and i know i do the ptc lab and i i remember talking to alia this summer that um the, the she's working to tweak that ptc lab and hoping hoping that she right. can get a new version of the ptc lab because it's even more complicated than we've been presenting it as cool as that lab is with the it is and that's what we do as teachers you know we try to simplify it so that we can put a concept and we even try to make that lab like a mendelian genetics lab when it, it is it is interesting yeah um yeah and i had a student who um who came back as a non-taster but i i do wonder you know she thought that she could taste it and having done a little bit more reading and some conversations this summer i'm wondering if you know she actually is a taster but you know the the snips are more complicated than the one that we've rolled out and from conversations i've right. had with people um right. we oversimplified down to this lab that we could get into a kid's hands and get it to 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 do this but we may not be we may be oversimplifying to a point where it's not going to match the results we expected to. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear more about what happens as we make this lab more complicated. Um, but I'm also, um, I want to be better about, uh, teaching genetics and evolution and not, you know, creating these messy misconceptions, um, especially ones that could have really dangerous, um, consequences down the line. I, I think so as well. And so I, I support and I look forward to really having open communications around the best way to teach it, um, that we all benefit, it's accurate, and it doesn't reinforce misconceptions. Yeah. All right. Well, as I said, I'll definitely drop the, the BSCS uh, towards a more humane genetic education uh, link into my show notes so that um, you can see them and so that other people can see them as well. Um, as I said, uh, the lead researcher is this guy named Brian Donovan and does some some really interesting stuff. Um, and uh, and I think that their plan is to be putting out resources as well. So um, lots of good people in different places are working on this problem. So um, hopefully we'll we'll all get better as we learn. Mm -hmm. All right. So, um, you know, you did your typical summer where you worked doggedly <laughs> with students and you got them in this STEM pathways work and, and did all that. And, um, and I know you don't have any 
slowing down um, as, as you move forward. Um, what are you looking forward to in the next couple of years, um, you know, with your students or uh, maybe even more broadly with your East Boston High School students um, as you guys move forward on some of the programs that you guys have initiated? Sure. I, I, I'm very excited. My, a lot of the emphasis that I've been working on in the last few years that I continue to help and grow is the, our biotech pathway. Mm-hmm. Um, and that pathway has been very important to me. It was what I uh, used to love to do in research. And it was skills that I wanted to bring to students um, because there's viable jobs. Boston is now, you know, a biotech hub. Mm-hmm. And we have a large number of people very interested in, in um, supporting our students to get there. All right. Um, and so we've had some excellent grants from MLSC. And I do want to go back and say, while I have supported and run around and taken pictures of my students, mm-hmm. um, I value the fact that, uh, you know, we have partners all over the schools and the PIC or the private industry council helps um, place the students into those jobs. And then places like Vertex have learning labs where they actually take our students from Boston and they they put them in the learning lab and they also help them transition into labs at Vertex. Mm. Um, and so I will say that while I run around and I take pictures and, and support all of my students as they're going through this process, the, the brunt of that work is done um, by really wonderful people in all of these places, in all of the companies and programs. Um, and I'm very interested in making more connections and growing that um, that pathway program and supporting other teachers so that they can actually teach it as well. And it's it will actually be integrated into the school and it will grow in Boston Public as well. So that's one of the things I'm hoping for. So when we use the word STEM pathway, I can think of a couple of groups. There is a group that is called STEM Pathways. Um, have they... Is that a group that's working in your school as well to help kids access these research opportunities? Um, I have not used STEM Pathways, and um, so I'm sorry. Okay, no, it's all right. I just um, wanted to I I want to make sure I'm using my language right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's okay. It's so in our school we have had a re-emphasis on career technical education programs. Mm-hmm. And we have CTE programs. And so the pathway that I work, we have two actually yeah, but two science pathways in our school. One is called the STEM pathway and the other is called the biotech pathway. Mm-hmm. And I have helped focus predominantly on the biotech pathway. And that's, a, you know, the life science pathway that works through. And the, that curriculum has been designed um, basically in that classroom. And fortunately, because I'm in Boston, I've able to use work from Amgen and Alia and ABE. Mm-hmm. I've been able to use work from BioBuilder. I've been able to use work from MassBioEd, and I've been able to use work from Vertex. And so, with all of these different companies, we actually in um, nonprofits, we're actually able to build a curriculum so that the students learn how to do biotech, and then they go into internships around the city to use what they've learned. And so, it's a multi-year program if it's a pathway. Sure. So, the biotech pathway is a two-year program. Mm-hmm. And they take one class in the spring of their um, junior year. And then I, in that class, they will learn everything from how to make a solution to how to um, use a thermocycler, PCR machine, to electrophoresis, and transformations. And then we'll send them out into, um, if they want, into different companies where they can use those skills. 
And then when they come back, they'll come back as seniors and I'll get to see them all mm -hmm. again for one class during their senior year in the fall. And then they will, we will look at what they've done, help them apply for colleges and see where they want to go. And then in the senior year class, we'll learn things such as um, like protein assays. We'll do some of the biobuilder work and, um, you know, help them figure out where they want to go from here. Nice. And so it sounds like um, because there's like a college component to that, I think it's sort of a, is it a college and career? Like if you were excited about college, this? Right? You know, CTE has its career technical education, but we both know. Yeah if we're honest with each other, that you really do need, um, I mean, I was a researcher before I was a teacher and I learned it in grad school. And so we're, I'm very honest with students about what the education needed is. So if you want to work in one of the companies and have a sustainable career, what is the actual schooling that you need? And you really, you know, you need a college. Yeah. Well, so I do definitely think of it as college slash career. Yeah. And for some, I mean, for some, they could go and get a, you know, an associate's degree and then work as a tech in, in some of those. But you're right. If you want to think from a career standpoint, you're going to need more education um, beyond high school, especially if you want to actually do science, if you want to ask the questions, if you right. want to um, be engaged at doing science more than just being a uh, you know, somebody who yeah. who holds a, a pipette or runs the same machine over and over and over again. Um, and increasingly, those uh, people who just had associate's degrees who ran the same machine over and over again, those machines are now becoming automated. So there's even fewer of those jobs yes, around. So. so I do I do think it's important in, in that pathway to be very clear. So we look at a lot of different job types what kind of school you need for each of those jobs, what schools in the area have it, how much those cost, and we make decisions and we start look, thinking about their career and college. And if, because a lot of the students who select the biotech pathway are already, they love science and they really loved biology. Some of them have taken AP bio and they want a career. And so I think it's, it is important to be honest about where everything is, what you need to do and help them, you know, make yeah. it go in that path. And some of these, I would imagine a, a good portion of these students may be first generation, you know, college uh, heading yes. off to school. So I, yeah. so. I have, I have a, a variety of students in my classes. Many of them are first generation college students. And I'm having that extra time to really look at college and see what it is and go through the process um, is extremely important. And if they, you know, have opportunities like they're doing with Vertex and, and Genzyme and some of the different companies to get a leg in and kind of get in the door as um, high schoolers in an internship. That's just incredibly huge. Yeah. That's a really big deal. And so one of the things I value is just how many people are focused on, you know, we have a common goal and that's to help our students succeed and, and get in that door and achieve what they want. It's very, very fulfilling to work in this area. All right. All right. Well, before we get to any questions you might have for me or for Pixie episode, um, let's talk about you outside of school because you seem to have a work-life balance, which uh, 
rivals me in that you don't sound like you have a very good work-life balance because <laughs> you just work all the time. But when you are not teaching and you're not, uh, you know, running around taking pictures of your students doing their internships, uh, what do you like to do? Um, yeah, work-life balance. Well, I do. I, you know what? I love the beach and Massachusetts has some very pretty beaches and I like to see glass. So when I do have a few minutes to get away, I will actually go walk on the beach, think about everything, get some sea glassing in. Hmm. And, um, and that helps me decompress a little bit. So that may sound boring, but it's, it's really how I get rid of my stress. How much water are you like? Are you going over to Kelly's over up in Revere? Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, like, well, no, but I, I definitely love the Nahant area. Uh, yeah. So I'm usually up here. Yeah, a little, little further away, but not too much further. Yeah, you can you <laughs> you can get to yeah, you can get to the beach pretty close from me. I'm like in the middle of the state, so I can't get uh Yeah, no. You are in the middle of the state. No, I have uh I moved to Massachusetts twelve years ago and little by little I've gotten closer to the water until finally now I'm right on it. So like I found where found where I wanna be. Nice. Yeah, well, you know, you get those two good months of beach weather we get every year. Um, <laughs> right? It makes it all worth it. <laughs> yeah. I can yeah. remember driving driving along the, the uh, when I would drive out to Winthrop and I would drive uh, through Revere. I'd come in from the north from uh, from the Malden and they would have to, they would shut the roads down uh, in the winter when like the Nor'easters would come in and like pound the right. roads on the side. And I'd have to like, <laughs> I'd be detoured because of waves, uh, basically. I know. I'm a little nervous about that. This will be my first winter up yeah, so you have to drive in a little bit more inland to get to work. Or uh, maybe moving out your way next, <laughs> like after this winter. Who knows? All right. Well, before we get to fix the episode, do you have any questions for me? And I don't know. You be, I mean, you don't have to have any questions. We've hit a lot of a lot of different things, and uh, so you you do not need to have questions for me. I, I have a million questions <laughs> for you, but I don't know if you have the time for them. But I do. I do. I'm more interested in talk, learning later, maybe in a your own podcast on you know, how you brought biotech into it and what do you do with biobuilder and how do you get your students so engaged and what are all your secrets? Oh. Um, I don't have a lot of secrets, but I think, I think talking about like biotech, um, my, my philosophy about biotech is kind of, it's, it's, it's been evolving. I think if you, we had gone back like 10 years ago, I would have been like, I really want to have a biotech class. I really want to have a biotech class. Um, and over the last 10 years, I, I don't want a biotech class. Um, I feel like having a biotech class is kind of like having like a microscopy class. Um, mm -hmm. I view biotechnology as like a suite of tools. Um, and I just want to have enough biotech that I can use biotech to help students answer questions in biology. Um, and so I want to use biotech in the in the solving of different problems and so over time what i have discovered and this actually happened as i was planning for the upcoming year um, i have like six different labs we run in ap this upcoming year that i could mm -hmm. finish by having like sequences sent out <laughs> now, right no, we don't we don't do that and we don't even get to gels every time but it allows us to have some flexibility to pick and choose where we utilize those tools. And I can always tell my students, all right, here's, we could continue this out to this point 
we're just not going to get to that point. Or if we wanted to use these set of tools here, we could get out to this point. So I, I guess my, my goal ultimately, and from a financial standpoint, we can't <laughs> run that many gels and um, run that much PCR no. and order that, those many reagents, even though we do have wonderful people like New England Biolabs who sends us stuff and, um, and other great companies and people who are willing to donate primers. Uh, I, I do want to, I want my students to realize that running a gel or doing PCR or sending out for sequencing um, is appropriate for answering some types of questions, but it is a tool just like a microscope is a tool sometimes, which will help you answer a scientific question. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so yeah. And so, and I am a uh, person who uh, will never say no to somebody who wants to give me stuff. So um. <laughs> <laughs> you're a teacher. Yeah. yeah. I'll take it. So uh, yeah, I'm a, uh, I said I'm a, I've described myself as a little bit of an outreach whore like somebody says oh we're doing this thing with outreach and I'll be like I'll, I'll do it <laughs> so uh and it's led to some great stuff but it, it also has led me to realize pretty quickly um you know how to discern a good partner from a partner who you know I if I have to invest a lot of time in the partnership it's not always worth it uh, I need to get a lot out if I'm going to invest a lot in um and so uh, I've also been um, I, I think I've gotten better skills at identifying things I think I'm going to get pretty good leverage out of for my students pretty quickly. So, awesome. so yeah, that's a reasonable question. And I, I have no secrets. I have, I'm an open book here. Um, <laughs> I am very flawed and I have no secrets. So, <laughs> all right, well, we have gotten to uh, picks of the episode. Um, and Amanda, you were hemming and hawing about a few. Um, do you have a thought for a pick for the episode for yourself? Sure. I guess since we've um, been talking a lot about uh, Luke Ward and genetics, um, I think that I'll, my pick would be for anyone to read um, as much as possible uh, Gloria Ladson Billings. Right. Um, she's one of my favorites, and she just had an interview put out that was really incredible. But she is um, one of the people, she's the researcher who really came up with the concepts of culturally relevant teaching. Mm. And uh, she has some good articles on, on her roles and, and how we could, we could do that. Yeah, I've seen a bunch of uh, Gloria Ladson Billings stuff. Um, so yeah, there's some stuff from, from, I guess she's out of Wisconsin, University of Mad uh, Wisconsin-Madison. Um, daring to dream in public is a article that they just put out with her. Um, this is a really nice profile. So I'll drop, a, I'll drop an article about her. All right. And so, yeah, culturally relevant teaching is definitely something that's come up, um, a lot. I think this particular summer, and I think as our conversation about genetics is, uh, I think relevant with that. Um, I often describe this as um, there are people who, who grow up and don't realize that they're privileged. Um, and then when you don't realize that you're privileged, there's like this sense of, okay, I need to learn. I need to listen to as many people as I can uh, to figure out why it took me so long to realize I was privileged. <laughs> and that's how I always feel whenever I hear about culturally relevant teaching for my students um, who are from places all over the world that I want to make sure that I don't have a, a a lens that that diminishes their representation in my room. 
Um, and so, yeah, we'll definitely put in a couple of links for her. She's got she's a great resource. <laughs> All right. Well, my pick is totally different, um, but uh, <laughs> uh, I went to uh, one of the workshops I was at at, uh, at Harvard this summer. Um, I got a, saw a presentation from a group that's from the OK Science Project or the Oklahoma Science Project, um, and it is a, uh, a project that was created by um, a couple of grad students who are at Harvard um, who are from Oklahoma originally, um, and they were a little dismayed at some of the statistics that came out about STEM funding and STEM resources back where they grew up. And so they created this Oklahoma Science Project. And um, what it does is it's, even though we're not in Oklahoma, neither of us are from Oklahoma, uh, what it does have in, in this site is it has um, a couple of cool things. One, it has a blog where they're featuring um, scientists from Oklahoma and those doing their work. So if you're somebody who wants to um, expose your students to the work of different types of people, people who uh, maybe come from different types of backgrounds and uh, they're, they're nice uh, than, than maybe you individually have, um, this is going to have the opportunity to uh, give you the profiles of some of these individuals. Um, they have a handful of them out, um, including uh, Kayla Davis, who's one of the founders of uh, the Oklahoma Science Project. And then more importantly for me, and the thing that really hooked me, is they actually have a learn to program module that has a six-step learn basic programming in Python um, module so that you can learn some biology-related coding. So, for example, how to do some inheritance probability using programming, how to build your own protein, um, how you could do uh, Python to do some image processing or some carbon dating. And it's a, it's, I, I played around with it. We did some of it in the workshop. I've done a little bit on my own. Um, this is something that if you had a student, let's say you're in a class and you've got a kid who is into programming, but it's not something that you have, you know, is a major part of your curriculum. This might turn on some kids to programming and biology in a very simple way that they can see how they could solve some problems um, that way. And similarly, if you wanted to, you know, I, I think I gave my 16 year old this and had him whip through it because he was interested in programming and he played around with this and thought it was kind of cool as well. Um, you don't have to be from Oklahoma to learn how to program. So um, their goal is to provide some enrichment to students back in their home state. But I think it's a, a really cool resource. Well, thank you very much for sharing it. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for finally joining me. This was a, I feel like this was the interview, a long, <laughs> long awaited interview for me. I've been trying to get you on. Uh, I had, I felt like, I felt like I finally got the OB. I was like, now that you got the OBTA, you can't duck me anymore. So, uh, I can't, I can't not, <laughs> but thank you so much for taking some, well, thank you for making it as painless as yeah, possible. Did you, did you forget we were recording? That's my question. Uh, almost. I almost forgot you, you were recording me. <laughs> All right. Well, let me give my show credits. Um, you can subscribe to Life of the School on um, any podcast player you like, including now Spotify. I actually officially got on Spotify this summer. Um, so any podcast uh, player you like to use, um, if you come across a podcast player and you cannot find Life of the School, let me know um, because it's pretty much everywhere. Um, you can support my episodes by going to patreon.com slash lots. Uh, Patreon's got an early release of my episodes. They also help support and defray the costs of hosting media and websites and that sort of thing. So I very much 
much appreciate my Patreons. Uh, music for this and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians. You can get show notes at lifeoftheschool.org or on my Patreon page uh, at patreon.com slash lots. You can t- uh, follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. You can follow Amanda at Amanda Dilling H3. Don't worry, I'll put it in the show notes if you would like to follow Amanda. And when I tweet this episode out, I will tag her in it. So thank you all for joining me, and I will talk to you all soon. Bye.